0: like Weekend at Bernie's, except this time, Bernie fights back. Welcome to Southpaw Deep Space Nine. I'm your co-host, Angel Marti, and this is the show where every week I take your friend and mine, Southpaw Sam, on a journey into Star Trek fandom by watching every episode of the most communist Star Trek series, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and dissecting and analyzing each episode in terms of the different cultural and political messages both overt and implicit sam how are you doing today
1: uh you know what i have to mention something based on our normal intro about the most communist star trek because i just saw on twitter and this might get a little bit dated for people listening but at the time of this recording i saw the star trek communist talk about how his interview
0: yeah will nguyen
1: yes how his interview from the star trek website about uh, the communism of Star Trek has been taken down.
0: Yeah, yeah. Star- the official Star Trek.com website has been pretty based for a while. Like they had an article. I got to check if the article talking about, you know, if a cab includes Odo is still posted. But yeah, they did an interview with Will Nguyen about, you know, how he uses his Star Trek fandom to basically agitate for uh, Marxism. And it's been taken down. Uh, so justice for Will Nguyen. free, free my man. I
1: think it's more of a canary in the mind because there's a general ratcheting further and further onto the right, the further away we are from the George Floyd protest. I think the only reason you could get something like that up on the Star Trek website is because of all the advancement that was made because of all the Black Lives Matter protests and the George Floyd protests. But since then... We've been ratcheting further and further to the right during the pandemic. And now, with war in Ukraine happening, I have to assume everybody is so right wing right now. Anything related to Marxism or the left is getting
0: taken down. Basically, because everybody still thinks, for some reason, most Americans still think Russia is communist. So basically, you know, people can suppress any kind of pro communist. Uh, content under under the guise of it being pro-Russian.
1: I think there's that. I think there's also just an added element of like, maybe we swung too far. We were getting too radical. God, yeah. And we need to come back towards, you know, liberalism and American values and trying to paint America as like a shining example of freedom and all that is good and Pax Americana. So then to talk about communism or any type of socialism right now would imply then that there's something to critique about us. And they don't want any critique of the US empire right now. So I think there's also that added element.
0: Capitalism's just like, no hate, only good vibes. I'm focusing on myself right now. I'm staying in my lane, moisturized, unbothered, no room for the haters.
1: I mean, I think even in general, a lot of ACAB, this criticism of cops is like not allowed right now. The winds have shifted so much where now even people who were critical, liberals, or maybe even some leftists who were critical of even the police, are now rolling that back and now they're not so critical of the police. Right now, if you start talking about ACAB or criticize the police, somebody's liable to call you a tanky or, you know, get mad at you. So that's how much we have shifted further to the right, maybe even more so than we were prior to the protests. So we're living in a scary time right now and Regardless of what happens with the war in Ukraine, what I've said is white supremacy will win.
0: Well, speaking speaking of like irritating liberal analyses on war, that takes us into today's episode. This is season one, episode 12, Battle Lines. So we open on uh, Cisco's, uh, Cisco's office where O'Brien and Dax are showing Cisco that they found some old Cardassian files from you know, that when the Cardassians had control of the station and they have files on some Bajoran terrorists, including major Kira. O'Brien like warns that maybe you should let Kira know before she finds it herself. And then Kira comes in the office and basically says, uh, what, let me see. And then it cuts to, uh, ops where Kira storms out of the office, complaining that she's only listed as being a minor operative of the Bajoran resistance, which, uh, this reminded me of how I felt when I both discovered and then read my page on KeyWiki. I was like, come on, there's more to me than just the two articles that, that I've had, the article that I had published in Democratic Left. That's all you've got on me? Uh, Bashir comes in on the comms to let go know that a Bajoran transport that he thought was only carrying medical supplies is also carrying Kai Opaka, who we, uh, we met in the pilot uh he, she's the Bajoran spiritual leader, and now she wants a uh, tour of the station and uh Cisco and Kira are way surprised that this is happening it's just like it's just like imagine if like uh you got like a shipment in of i don't know you know like imagine if like the truck that restocks all the chips at the seven eleven pulled in and just like the Dalai Lama was sitting in the back of the truck. <laughs> <laughs> So apparently the Kai's never really left Bajor before, let alone come to DS9. And uh, when she arrives in the station, Bashir notices that she's uh, preoccupied. And uh, given that this is Bashir's first uh, reaction to uh, a woman arriving on Deep Space Nine, I'm guessing that the nun-like conservative garments are working because uh, Dr. Horny's powers seem completely nullified. <laughs> or, or maybe it's just that Kai Opaka hasn't, like, threatened to kill him or shown any kind of visible annoyance at him, and that's what he needs to feel interest. So Opaka's found the, the, the antidote to Dr. Horny's miasma. So during Opaka's visit, uh, she expresses a strong interest in going to see the wormhole. And she doesn't even ask directly. All she does is give Sisko this very, uh, this very sort of mischievous smile and cisco immediately uh schedules uh he requisitions a runabout to take her uh into the wormhole and uh so one of the things that i noticed here though is that why the hell doesn't a visiting bajoran spiritual leader get all of the dress uniform style pomp and circumstance that the freaking wadi got and move along home (laughs) it's like after they know that she's here they just are going along, not even dress uniforms. I mean, it's it I mean, it I for a second I thought it was maybe that like Kaiopaka wanted to go under the radar, but it's not like like she's walking openly on the promenade and it's not like all the Bajorans on the station wouldn't recognize her. So I like to think that maybe it's just after they were so disappointed that the Wadi showed no interest in it. Sisko was just like all right, we're just not going to do that anymore.
1: <laughs> if I didn't know what you and other fans have told me how big of a deal, how like as a spiritual leader, Kaiopaka was, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to tell right? because of the way that is so subdued and just seems like it's just another person, right?
0: Well, also we just don't get a lot of Opaka between like the pilot and this episode. So it's like not really, it's, it's because it's been a while since we've last seen her. It is easy to just be like, all right, is this person like, uh, you know, just another Bajoran refugee or whatever? But it's like, no, she's like, you know, I mean, Kira's subsequent reaction to her makes it very clear, but its it just does seem out of the blue. So when they're about to enter the runabout to go on this trip to the wormhole, Opaka sees O'Brien and says, uh, you have a child, don't you? Because I mean, O'Brien's very dad-shaped, so you don't have to be a spiritual leader to guess that, <laughs> looking at, looking at uh, Miles. But uh, she then takes off her necklace and tells O'Brien to give it to his daughter. So that's like the first clue that like there's some bad premonitions going on here. But uh, so they board the runabout, which is called the Yang Si Qiang, which it's, it's Yang Zi damn it. Uh, but nobody cares but me. Uh, so they go into the wormhole and come out the other side, and Cisco remarks that it's the smoothest ride yet. And since we know in the pilot that the wormhole was inhabited by basically Kai Opaka's employers, uh, it would make sense that they would they would make it smooth for them. Uh, Opaka just seems moved to tears by the experience. Which the fact that like we don't see something happening that has greatest uh, emotional but that has great emotional effect on the characters uh sort of foreshadows uh, some things that happen in the rest of this episode for me as far as the creative direction are all
1: the runabouts named after rivers on planet earth
0: yes yes yeah you caught up on that quick uh yeah they're like named like the danube the orinoco yeah that's just their little their little theme it's cute it doesn't have any like particular greater significance or explanation it's just that was their That was their fun little thing. I mean, they usually seem to have this theme. They usually have this thing where, like, on Star Trek shows, the shuttlecraft or, like, whatever smaller craft, you know, are associated with the show have, like, some kind of uh, uh, theme. Like, on the original series, all the shuttlecraft were named after, like, historical astronomers like Galileo and Copernicus. So, it's a cute little Easter egg here. So Cisco uh, says to Opaka that she will soon see what the wormhole will be worth to Bajor. And she responds, if that is to be my fate. So, all right. Uh, uh, I, again, this is me rewatching the episode, not quite remembering what happened. So I'm just like, OK, all right. We're basically being told she is expecting to die.
1: Cool. <laughs> my wife, she said. Yeah, this is gonna be it. She's not leaving this planet. I'm like, what? How did you get that? She's like, watch.
0: She gives away, I mean, number one, like I said, she gives away like just something that was like on her person to the nearest like dad that in her in her <laughs> in her purview. I mean, in her um, within the sound of her voice. And then she's like talking about any kind she's referring to any kind of uh uh instance of her having a future with like ominous prophecy. So <laughs> So when they're about to turn around and go back to Deep Space Nine, uh, she's like, what's the hurry? Why do we need to leave, uh, go back already? And then she makes another vague reference to testing prophecy. And then sure enough, they receive a strange uh, subspace signal and uh, Opaka insists that they go and investigate it right now with her in the shuttle. This is like the Pope showing up and then insisting you drive him to meet his weed guy. (laughs) They trace the signal to a moon, a small moon with a network of satellites orbiting it and a group of life forms uh, all gathered on a 12 kilometer patch of the surface. Hmm. Seems suspicious. Seems like seems like our sensors have picked up inciting incident, Captain. So when they go in for a closer look, the satellites fire on them and disable their shields and thruster controls so they are forced to crash land. And sure enough, Opaka is the only one who needs to be pulled out of the shuttle because she's fucking dead. Of all the lengths someone will go to just to be right. My God. Uh, you know, just because, just because she's told that she's gonna die by prophecy, she makes them go out of their way to drive all the way to some moon with murder satellites. But uh, Kira is devastated. Like this, this is like if you were Italian, the Pope visited, asked you to go visit his weed dealer, and then you got caught in a hit-and-run, and you survived. So, Kira, unfortunately, is not allowed to mourn for long, and I wonder if mourn is allowed to Kira for very long, uh, as they are met by a group of uh, Mad Max rejects with weapons. Um, we cut back to the station. Uh, Dax, O'Brien, and Odo are like nervous call center employees trying to figure out where Cisco and the Kai are because they've lost contact with them for hours and what to tell the Bajorans about it because their spiritual leader has gone missing. Uh, Dax and O'Brien decide to follow them in their own runabout and have the Bajorans station a ship on the Gamma Quadrant side of the wormhole. We cut back to the moon, and uh, Cisco, Dax, and Bashir are taken to the uh, unwashed clan's equally unwashed leader, and we learn that they are called the Ennis. Garth Ennis? No, just the Ennis. Uh, and their leader is called Golan Shela. Uh, he asks Sisko why they're there. Asking if Sisko knows anything about their home planet or what the punishment is. Uh, we'll get to that later. But uh, Kira interrupts the interrogation with cries of pain because she obviously has suffered some other kind of injury. Uh, um, I guess, I guess it's just like the, the amount of dead you you got in that shuttle crash depended on how Bajoran you were. Uh, but uh, Bashir uh, asked to be allowed to treat her and Shella like a sense. So we know that these characters are somewhat sympathetic.
2: A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash pod
0: So, Shella tells Cisco that the Ennis are at war with a brutal enemy that attacks at whim and is apparently impervious to directed energy weapons? Uh, and then they reveal that they do not control the satellites orbiting the moon that shot the shuttle down. And in fact, those satellites are uh, holding them prisoner. So the enemy that they're fighting against are called the Nol Ennis. Uh, And so just because Ennis and Nol Ennis seems too confusing to me, I'm just going to call Shell Law's people the Garth Ennis. But uh, so the apparently like the the Nol Ennis and the Garth Ennis were forced onto this moon with no resources and no doctors. And Bashir is a doctor. And so, uh, uh, it's it's also lucky that they were banished to this moon without any doctors or any horny people. So his services are doubly needed. Kira, however, is still uh, just sort of obsessing over Opaka's death and how she was this important spiritual symbol who then uh, is just left to die on some unknown moon. Um, Which... You know it's kind of how I'm feeling, and I will again I will get to my feelings on that as we get through continued feelings on that as we get through the episode so uh, Shela offers to protect them from the Null Ennis uh, in exchange for dr. Bashir's help and then he uh, offers to train the Ennis in the basics of field triage thankfully not in the uh, skill of doctor patient boundaries so the Null Ennis attack during the firefight. Uh, um, all the uh, all of the Ennis are apparently shot dead. Like, everybody dies. Uh, Kira grabs a phaser and stops the uh, attack by uh, shooting some rocks that cause a little avalanche that drive the attackers away. So as our heroes assess the casualties, they hear a voice and a figure coming out of the shadows, and it's... Kaiopaka. <laughs> Bashir scans her, and uh, it seems to be her. It's not a clone. It's not some kind of... Uh, uh, uh make me live like uh <laughs> conscience transference uh she's alive she's normal however in con uh Bashir does take Cisco aside and tell him in confidence that there seems to be quote a biomechanical presence at a cellular level has she been put into a ghost in the shell cyber body is she the laughing man what more nerdy references can I fit into this episode uh Bashir suggests that he could get a better understanding of the nature of her resurrection if the runabout's computer was online. Uh, You know, uh, too bad. The computer is also dead, so they have to fix that. But then we see everybody who was shot dead during the attack come back to life. They basically just shrug off being shot and stabbed, and they're like, and then they wake back up. Great, our heroes have crash-landed into the thriller video. So, um, we cut back to Dax and O'Brien on the shuttlecraft, and then the, the Dax and O'Brien are able to find the runabouts, blah, 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 tech, tech, particle signal, and they, uh, set a course for the A-plot. Um, so Bashir, uh, scans all of these miraculously resurrected people and finds that the biomechanical presence inside Opaka is inside all of them. Clearly, the biomechanical presence is the friends we made along the way. Um, but, they, but it turns out they, they, they explain that they have died and come back to life a bunch of times during the course that they've been on, a, on this moon. So now fixing the runabout's computer to try and figure this shit out becomes Bashir's priority. It also becomes Shella's priority because he wants to know why the hell he keeps dying and come, coming back. And he agrees to provide protection to Bashir. As they go back to the runabout. So we get more. Uh, develop. We get more explanation from Shala, uh Some more exposition. Uh, this episode's a real exercise. In telling and not showing. Uh, because like Shela explains. That the Ennis and Noel Ennis were basically like. Space Hatfields and McCoys. They're, they're clans that have been in a never ending. Generational feud. And the leaders of their home planet. Were unable to mediate a peace. So they just banished them to this moon where they could fight and kill each other over and over again to quote uh, serve as an example for the rest of civilization and so this is where i start to think about like all the things that that make me feel irritated about this episode because it, it sort of reminds me of like old liberal attitudes that i used to have like before my radicalization because th- you know thinking about these two people who are like caught in a perpetual war And they're just like, and they were just like, because, because they couldn't negotiate outside parties, couldn't negotiate peace. They just banished them both. This really makes me feel like what white liberals wish they could do to the entire Middle East, (laughs) (laughs) because I just remember when I was, you know, just trying, just sort of parodying, you know, what, what, uh, what my parents and like, you know, the daily show and other, you know, liberal sort of political uh, uh sort of semi-political outlets set you know would say about the middle east it just does feel like they were so the prevailing attitude was just like uh oh, these two backwards people are just fighting forever and nobody can get them to agree i just wish we could just sort of you know remove them from the entire equation so this 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 is what this is what starts to make me feel like this whole episode is just liberal aspirational fiction but uh, especially especially when so Shella, so Cisco asked Shella, like, what did the what did the uh, you know, uh, what did the conflict start over? And Shella's was just like, some say it was land, some say it was water. Uh, it's now been forgotten. And the only motivation now is vengeance. Like it's 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 just amazing how it just really echoes how, you know, you ask like most people to talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And they'll just sort of like. They'll just talk about how it's like, oh, it's just, you know, conflict that goes thousands and thousands of years back to biblical times. And like, they'll just like, not talk about how like the actual like mandate of Palestine and the creation of the state of Israel in like 1947, being basically being imposed on the Middle East by Britain and Western and European powers has nothing to do with it. Like in and that. And and like the it, in and not that there continue to be actual modern actions taken to escalate the violence. They always just like to say it as just like oh they're just fighting to fight.
1: There's a good parallel we could draw here with the Bajorans. There's a later scene where even Kira talks about that Bajorans even if you can die right they'll still fight. And they didn't make this explicit. I think they had too much of a liberal bias, but just based on the context. How I can use the Bajorans as an example to the point you're making is that in this scenario, if you can't die, there's no consequences. So fighting isn't that big of a deal, right? And so then they just kind of make it about like these ideas that are just silly and you're just choosing to fight. But if you can die like Bajorans and to your point, like Palestinians, then you need material reasons to fight. Bajorans don't fight just to fight. There's a material reason to risk your life. And so they draw a parallel where they're saying Bajorans are just like these people, but in actuality, they're not because these people have nothing at stake. And so then it just really is about a feud in their minds. But for the Bajorans, they fought not because of ideas, but because of the material consequences of their life, which forced them to fight because otherwise they were going to constantly be killed anyway. So This goes back to a point you always like to bring up, dialectical materialism. This is the difference to maybe how you used to think, which was in this more of like, the world is made up of ideas and people can just choose to be better versus the Marxist way of thinking about things, which is that the world is based around material reality and we're all acting on it and we're all products of our environment. And if people fight, it's because there's a reason there's something happening, there's some material reason that is causing them to fight and be willing to risk their life for something.
0: Yeah. And on that point, so yeah, so so Kira starts like, you know, uh, you know, instead of like, instead of moralizing about, you know, both sides stuff, she just starts telling Shelah about the flaws in their tactics. And then Shelah just goes, when you cease to fear death, the rules of war change, which like, uh, to me, actually, I just I just thought of this now. The whole, like, them just sort of killing each other and getting to just sort of regenerate and kill each other over and over again is kind of a metaphor for the fact that, like, especially, you know, when people in the Imperial Corps hear about, you know, all the conflicts in the Middle East, because they're so far away and we don't, like, have any kind of personal uh, sense of, like, the actual death. and and suffering it is easy to just sort of conceive of like you know at this time in particular i guess like israelis and palestinians is just like a group of people that just are sort of constantly killing each other and then just like constantly regenerating to kill each other again so opaka like tells kira you know that she probably you know that kira must see herself in uh these in But then warns Kira that this is not her war, which almost seems to put Kira instead in the role of like Americans, you know, sort of like, because the liberal view, I think, you know, of the Middle East is like, you know, oh, we shouldn't get involved. We should, you know, we still shouldn't get involved because it's not our war and we shouldn't be the police of the world. But like, we still view like both parties as just sort of these backwards people caught in a cycle of death uh, rather than you know, having any kind of uh, role in the conditions that created this cycle of death.
1: Yeah, it reduces historical materialism into something very silly, which is what liberals like to do.
0: Yeah. So uh, Cisco uh, then decides to offer, give an offer to uh, Shellaw, which is that when the rescue party that is inevitably going to come and penetrate the defense satellite network, holding them prisoner, they will offer to transport both the Garth Ennis and Nol Ennis off of this planet so they can escape the Sisyphean punishment. So the condition, though, is that uh, the uh, Shella has to get the leader of the Nol Ennis, Zlanko, a name almost as fun to say as Ibudan, uh, to agree to a ceasefire. Um there's this great line where like Shella almost goes full stallone, and he's just like, "You'll never agree to a ceasefire." Um, <laughs> he says the Noel would never agree to it, but uh Cisco manages to uh you know convince him that if he really cares about escaping this you know escaping this fucking torture, uh, he will at least agree to talk so then we cut back to this runabout, and Dax and O'Brien are. Finding, finding the right star system, and then there's some. This scene is so full of like very next generationist techno babble bullshit that serves <laughs> no purpose other than to explain why it's taking them so long to find Cisco and the gang. Like, do we really need a scene telling us this? Like, we can understand that it's taking them a while to find them by them just not showing up yet. We don't need to explain why. It takes them a while to, like, I don't know. Again, this might have just been because I was grumpy when I was watching it, but, like, there's a scene where, so, so like, O'Brien, like, says, like, we can find the runabout if, like, we outfit the probes with a differential magnetomer. and And Dax goes, I've never heard of a differential magnetomer. How does it work? And I literally shouted, who cares at the screen?
1: (laughs) I think that was all attempts of using uh, nerdy talk as humor.
0: As filler, though. It's fucking packing peanuts.
1: You're basically talking shit about Big Bang Theory then, too.
0: Oh, I hate Big Bang Theory. (laughs) So back on the moon, where the actual fucking narrative is happening, we cut back to the runabout, and all all we see is the runabout's computer turning on and Bashir saying... Nice work, Julian. Oh, come on. No monologue about how you had to reconfigure the Magnus capacitor manifold and reverse the polarity on the boson flux hygrometer? Come on, DS9 writers. My rectum is prolapsing from how badly I need to hear a fake technological explanation for why the plot is happening.
1: (laughs) I was waiting for them to say the flux capacitor.
0: I know you could j- just just re- just replace every like noun with flux capacitor in those kinds of techno babble like monologues, and it doesn't change anything. But then also, okay, then we cut to uh, Cisco Shalal returning to talk to Cisco, saying that Zlenko has agreed off screen to the ceasefire. <laughs> what the fuck! I'm so angry that this episode had to deal with a we had to see a fucking two minute scene of dax and o'brien talking about magnetic fields like bill nye on a robitussin trip instead of actually seeing some character interaction that would have actually informed more of the emotional stakes of the plot like god damn it like star trek i'm so angry because i love you like i know you're better than this i'm i'm mad and disappointed
2: if you love the southpaw project please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod.
0: So, Shela says he and Z- Zlanko have agreed to meet at a neutral location near the runabout. So when Kira voices concerns that th- there might be a trap, uh, Shela just responds that they've taken the appropriate precautions. Which means, yeah, they're just gonna fucking kill-not-kill kill each other as soon as they get there, huh? Sisko goes off with Shella, and we get Kira and Opaka by-, by themselves, where Opaka asks Kira if she sees herself in these people. And we get this scene where Kira talks about how, like, you know, she's really longs for, uh, spiritual absolution and forgiveness from Opaka herself and from the prophets because, you know, she's guilty about all the violence she's done in her life. And, and, uh, you know, she doesn't, Want to create the impression that she enjoys fighting, just because you know she's so you know material minded, uh, you know about fighting and so focused on just tactics. And she's but she's moved past that stage in life, and and Opaka says that she can only move forward if she accepts the violence inside her instead of denying it. Like as much as I might hate the actual politics of the subtext of the episode, the 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 interaction between the actors during this scene, like as the filming of it, at least humanizes enough that I can see that it's really just about, you know, the trauma of growing up under constant warfare and how it, you know, Kira doesn't want to feel like, you know, her psyche has not been permanently warped to being a violent person. And that even even committing justified violence can, you know, can make you still feel guilty.
1: This was also the first scene where I saw DS9 address Kira's PTSD, that all the war and her past had traumatized her. And it was acknowledging that.
0: Right. And it's not the last time. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, like, th- this is one of the things where in this episode, it's like, this theme is interesting. Why don't we focus more on this instead of freaking magnetic fields? I'm, I'm going <laughs> to let that go. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to let that go. I also just like my, my initial like sort of uncharitable reading of the scene also made me sort of give myself a little bit of a reality check because like the same way that like I was saying how liberals can just sort of view conflicts in the Middle East is just like groups of people who just like keep killing each other over and over again, you know, without actually suffering, without imagining the suffering of actually dealing with death. It can be easy for like communists who grow up in the safe imperial court like myself to fetishize justified violence without thinking about the long-term psychological effects and how it can still suck to be, you know, embroiled in violence, even if it's for a good cause. So, so I, I did some self-reflection, you know, thanks to this scene.
1: I think another way to read this isn't just about war and shitty liberal politics about it, but also this episode for me felt like an allegory for purgatory it felt like very much a metaphorical episode which also makes sense then why kai opaka is here right if you are in purgatory then you need the spiritual leader
0: sam sam if if this episode had been executed the way that you just pitched it like if this was like if kai opaka was the verge was virgil and and kira was dante and this is like dante's inferno where like you know kira's just sort of exposed to this this thing as sort of like a metaphor for her own spiritual suffering that would have been you know amazing like i'm doing you can't see this because it's an audio podcast but i'm doing the chef's kiss hands the mwah you know like like that would have been wonderful but it really does not come off like this
1: that's because all of that happened off screen just have to assume
0: (laughs) yes yes jesus so the ennis and the nolan show up to meet near the runabout at a place where there's some conveniently lit tiki torches and i guess that makes it feel more like a party than a peace talk cisco cisco tells bashir about the plan to transport them off the planet and uh bashir uh asks if that's like assisting a jailbreak and and cisco very firmly uh tells them to fuck off because they've literally died (laughs) over and over again in penance for whatever crimes they've committed and cisco uh just Cisco just doesn't even want to entertain the debate if, like, this whole situation is morally or ethically justifiable, which I, I really dig about that. <laughs> so, I get, uh, so uh, this, th- that scene did make me think that, like, you know, even with a possible analog to liberal ideas of what conflicts in the Middle East are about, uh, this, this might be, like, another—this might—this could be construed as mostly an anti-capital punishment episode, as the real villain here is whoever sent these poor fucks onto this prison planet in the first place. And, you know, that that trapping somebody in a never ending, uh, you know, cycle of violence, you know, for the sake of uh, of uh, punishment does kind of like eventually just decontextualize the suffering. It's just like when the when a punishment is just violence for violence, you could say that, like, when there's no like. Nothing that really, you know, grounds the punishment in like the source of the transgression. You know, there is no opportunity for transformation. Then just like nothing really gets learned. But, uh, but to me, the fact that that the con that the conflict just again from a narrative uh, creative point of view, the fact that the conflict between the Ennis and the Noel Ennis existed prior to the imprisonment and wasn't just a result of the like the the crabs in a bucket condition of their situation is what makes it feel still like they're just trying to do the liberal both sides crap and and the fact that like you know cisco kind of feels a little self-congratulatory about getting both sides to you know come to talk it 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 like it makes me think that this episode wants you to think of cisco as like what america's role was in the camp david talks is like (laughs) for a historical note, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, it does bear noting that, so this episode did air in April, 1993. And in August of the same year was, uh, when the, uh, the PLO, uh, and Israel signed the first Oslo accord, which was like the beginning of a process that was supposed to eventually lead to some kind of two state solution. Uh, gee, I wonder how that turned out, but, uh, but I just bring that up to say that, like, it is val- uh, like it it is valid to assume that this was meant as like some kind of allegory for the Israeli Palestinian conflict because I'm sure it was in the news at the time.
1: Very much like the zeitgeist of the time.
0: Yeah. So of course, like we predicted, the talks break down. The Ennis and the Nolanis all kill each other. Bashir tackles Cisco, possibly because he hasn't gotten any this whole episode and has to vent his urges somehow. But. Also, uh, conveniently saves Cisco from getting an axe in the back in the process. Bashir tells Cisco that he's been able to find out that uh, you know now that the runabout's computer is working, he's find out that the once the cellular McGuffins revive someone from death, the bodies cannot live without them at all after that point. And if anyone's taken off the planet, the micro stop working. So it's kind of like those locks that make a shopping cart's wheel seize up if you take them out of the supermarket parking lot but at a cellular level.
1: God damn, I hate those.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, conven- yeah, so, uh, so conveniently, they can't transport the Ennis, Nolanis, or Kai Opaka off the planet without killing them. And so, like, that means they don't have to c- actually help anyone or change the status quo. Bashir uh, says that he can, like, reprogram the, the uh, nanobots to, like, eventually let them die. And then Opaka decides that it's her prophesied fate to, like, stay and help them heal. Before they die or some bullshit like basically basically they don't actually have to do anything and they can just like, you know, leave and like feel bad about themselves while they leave, which is like ultimately the confirmation that this episode is about America in the Middle East.
1: This isn't even to defend or criticize this particular scene. It's just more about the context of how I'm watching it right now with everything that's happening in the world right now. So how I was reading it when it happened was how Golan Shala is saying, program the bots then so we could all die, because that way then nobody wins, right? (laughs) It's basically the nuclear option. He'd rather they all die than allow the Noel Ennis to win, basically, right? And this hit too close to home, because right now we have nuclear war currently on the table, And I'm seeing way too many liberals and even progressives to leftists joining in on the let's all die, it's worth it bandwagon. And what's funny is liberal Cisco fans who probably fancy themselves as being like Cisco probably see no contradictions in their actions with demanding NATO shoot down Russian planes or straight up nuke Russia first or try and assassinate Putin with no concern of reprisal. So they fancy themselves like Cisco but they're acting like Golan Shala. Let's just all die because it's better the world end than Putin win or whatever the hell. So there was that reading that didn't exist back then, but very much exists right now.
0: Yeah, exactly. The reaction to the situation is like, oh, it's a conflict that has like, you know, uh, causes that everybody like doesn't even remember now. And ultimately it's a conflict that doesn't affect us. So It 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 would just uh, alleviate our guilt and suffering of having to witness this conflict if everybody would just died and like, you know, made us stop having to care.
1: Except right now it would be all of us die. Right. It wouldn't be just Ukraine and Russia die. Like nuclear war would mean all of us die. And if I didn't explain it earlier, Cisco in the scene is the one who's like, no, we're not doing that.
0: Well, so that's the end of the episode. And, and if it wasn't obvious, I, I fucking hate this episode. Like, you know, and, and, and I hope, like, I hope everybody who's like been listening to every episode of this podcast so far, at least finds it a refreshing change that like, everybody knows that obviously I'm in no rush to shit on Deep Space Nine because I love this show and I love Star Trek. But this episode, just like, I, I would take like, Run, move along home a thousand times over this episode because at least move along home is an episode where like every scene like seems useful to expl- either advancing the plot or like developing the characters and it's like everything interesting of, number one it's like the premise of this episode feels like a tos episode that didn't even have like tos's fun campiness like like you know like the right version of this episode was basically like um I mean, I mean, there have been multiple TOS episodes where it's like people are trapped on a planet and forced to, uh, uh, forced to fight to the death. There's arena where Kirk fights the Gorn. There's um, the Savage Curtain where Kirk and Spock are are forced to team up with Abraham Lincoln and Sirach to fight to the death with a team of villains from history. It's like there's something so like it, it's just that the premise is simplistic and then the the what they do with the with the premise is simplistic and ham-fisted it feels like opaka's involvement seems completely unnecessary and seems like just a completely inex like just a a a arbitrary way to write the spiritual leader of the bajorans out of the show so I, i went and looked at memory at the trivia section of the page of this episode on memory alpha and it says that this was one of the costlier episodes of this season to produce but like <laughs> that's surprising. This episode only has like three sets. Like it has like ops, the runabout and the planet and it's just like it, it feels it feels like an episode that was made as a as a filler and it was like hamstrung by no budget.
1: So for listeners, you've heard Angel's critique of this episode all very valid I think especially the points about structure and writing and craft, how to craft a good show, how to craft good writing, directing, not just for Star Trek, but just in general, right? You want to show, not tell. But for me, coming into the show, my, I guess, job is to more think about the political readings of Star Trek. So when I watch it, I don't really pay too much attention to the craft of the show which I normally do for other shows, but for this one, I'm thinking more from like the perspective of philosophy and politics and what are like the nuggets of ideas that they have. And so for me, some of the interesting ideas that I saw portrayed, starting with Kira and with the Ennis and Noel Ennis, that you can't just get over trauma by just deciding to get over it. You need to heal and process. They didn't really show us that. They literally just told you that you need to heal and process. So the execution was not so great, but that idea was there. And Kai Opaka had a good therapy session with Kira and now is here to give the colony healing from their trauma. So it definitely made me think also if some of the writers are in themselves in therapy and maybe benefit from therapy. And they're like, let me write that in, you know, kind of like I have an episode about the benefits of therapy because the overall good message I got from this is that you need to work through your shit. Otherwise, the battle inside you will never end. So normally, the war analogies in DS9 are literally about wars. But this one, I think very much is about the zeitgeist of the time of the conflicts that was happening in the 90s. But also, I saw it as a metaphor for your own personal trauma, battles, and healing. And if you don't work through it, You'll be a prisoner of your own mind and of your own past, which we see on that moon where these people have a past together and they just can't get over it, work through it, work through their trauma. It's almost like Kaiopaka is there as some kind of like mediator, marriage counselor. So I kind of saw this also then as a self-care episode. We all need to work through our own battle lines, but also let's not press the literal nuclear option. Be a Cisco and not a Golan Shala i mean i'm thinking about this like literally right now with constant talks about like nuclear bombs and oh putin doesn't really mean at this time it's like dude that's something you don't want to be wrong about and really everybody's been wrong all the experts have been wrong let's start from the 09 financial crisis they were wrong and then these same experts were wrong about trump and then these same experts were wrong about putin invading and now they're saying putin doesn't really mean it with the nukes he's just joking like that's not something you want to be wrong about, okay?
0: Well, you know what? Next week, uh, I'm 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 excited because the next episode is going to be—it's a bit of an O'Brien centric episode, which always <laughs> makes it more del- uh, more uh, delightful. It's going to be the storyteller. In the meantime, if you like this show, please make sure to follow us on Patreon. That's Patreon.com/southpawpod. And for as little as $4 a month, you can become a Patreon patron and you can get access to our Discord server and participate in our lovely little community. And uh, becoming a patron supports not just this show, but just Southpaw Prime. Uh, That's just my name for it. Uh, Fight Study, Pride Never Die, uh, Working Stiff Radio, just helping this lovely little uh, community of people who have come together over their love of leftism and uh, various fighting sports and per, and performing arts uh just keeping it going. Uh Sam do you have any uh other things you want to plug before we sign off?
1: Let's just hope that the planet still exists for next week for us to watch that episode because that episode sounds delightful and I'd like to be here to watch it.
0: Da-na-na-na.